We'll be in Amos chapter 7, verse 10, if you'll make your way there. <clears throat> it's a challenge, isn't it, to know with all the voices in the world who to listen to. Um, decades ago, it just occurs to me how things change and new generations don't really think about it. Uh, and, and I don't really think about it either, how things have changed. But it used to be, if you wanted to hear about what was going on in the world, you had to tune it, you had to be at home, turn on the TV at a particular hour, and if you left the room to pull snags off the barbecue or something, you come back in and you missed the main story of what happened locally or across the nation, you have to wait till the next day. Uh, there's no DVR, there was no recording that. Um, and it's like, today... The corporations, the papers and cable networks, they're fighting for readers and they're fighting for ratings because an online search instantly provides thousands of options. And you can choose which, which style or approach you prefer. And, but with all those options, with all those voices, the voice of Jesus Christ is distinct from them all. He only speaks the truth. And he says in John 10, 27 and 28, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And you don't need electricity or device or the internet to hear the voice of God. In fact, those things can hinder us sometimes from hearing the voice of God. Um, but praise the Lord that the voice of God who spoke the heavens into existence, who said, let there be light and there was light, he speaks, and he speaks to us today through his word. And, and it's like we should be reading the Bible not as a magazine or a newspaper, which has general information or is, is possibly relevant to your life, but really as a personal letter from God, that it's been written, uh, addressed to you. It's like a personal letter. It's something special for you to read from God to you that you receive and take to heart. Take it personally. It, we usually say, you know, don't take it personal. But when it comes to the Bible, take it personal. It's for you. It's for you to listen to and grow in. Uh, and in Amos 7, God's directed Amos to speak against the northern kingdom. He, God roared against the nations, but he, he took special care to address his people. The first couple chapters, there was a lot of different nations mentioned, but then he hones in on Israel. And like a, a father chastens the son in whom he delights God corrected his people he warned them of the judgment that's coming they had broken his covenant and he boldly spoke on behalf of the Lord in Amos 7 9 the high places of Isaac shall be desolate the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam do you think that Amos wanted to be the bearer of bad news no, not any more than we like the difficult or trying seasons or, or difficulties of life. Like, but God saw fit to walk us through those times, through those trials and those painful events and those ongoing difficulties to accomplish his purposes and to reveal his will. And he's faithful to increase our faith through those trials and difficulties. And our strength has increased by his grace. And when we follow Jesus, we don't know where he's going to lead us. We don't know the things that he's going to ask us to do that are totally contrary to what we feel like doing or what we want to do. But we can trust that he's with us. He keeps his word. He'll lead us. He's not going to forsake us. He lifts us when we fall. 
and uh, he helps us do the impossible, as we see in Amos. So Amos 7, verse 10, it, it, it is a little bit of a shift. Instead of Amos just talking, now we see some interaction with the people that he's talking to, the high priest of Bethel. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from their own land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah. There eat bread, and there prophesy. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the royal residence." We don't read of people repenting at the word of Amos, but we do notice that not all were pleased or approving of what he said, namely Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. So he prophesied in Bethel. That was one of the two sites that the first Jeroboam set up these golden calves, these shrines, and he said, it's too hard for you to go to Israel. Worship God here. But that was in violation of what God had said, that you were only to, you weren't to make images and you were only to worship God in Jerusalem when you appear before the Lord. That was the one place you were to go and appear on those feast days. And it says that Jeroboam took it upon himself to sanctify priests of all classes of people. And no devout Levite or even Israelite would consider being in that role to facilitate idolatry within the land. The priest of Bethel, Amaziah, he gives this false and a bad report to the king of Jeroboam. And this is Jeroboam 2. This is the second one. And he says, Amos has conspired against you. The land isn't able to bear up his words that God's going to cause Jeroboam to die by the sword. And that's not what he said. He said God is going to bring the sword against his house. It's not the same thing. And it illustrates how unbelievers frequently twist and distort the word and miss the point. And that's exactly what happened here. It happens to this day. And Amaziah rebuked Amos for the words that he said and where he said them. He said, you're saying it in Bethel. That's where the king lives. Show some respect. You know, go home. There eat food. There prophesy. Do whatever you want away from here. But don't come to Bethel and speak against it. This mentioning of going to Judah to eat bread, it infers that Amaziah viewed him as a profiteer. He was a prophet for profit, that he would come and, and speak against places and preach, kind of like uh, in the old Western movies where the guy's hawking his cure-all tonic from village to village. And he's like, you know, don't bring that around here. Don't bring, you know, the word of God here, prophet. Go home. Go there and profit. But in reality, that's what Amaziah was doing. He was cashing in on religion. He was the one who was seeking to get a meal ticket out of this uh, improper worship of God. But Amos, he didn't come to Bethel to disrespect the king. He wasn't there to gain a following or to make a living. He was there because God called him to and put words in his mouth, and he did so in obedience to God. Verse 14, then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel. Do not spout against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a harlot in the city. 
Your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided by survey line. You shall die in a defiled land, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from his own land. Amos answers Amaziah, and he says, I didn't aspire to be a prophet. I didn't train to be a prophet. Being a prophet didn't run in my family. It's not like my dad was a prophet, so I'm just a prophet because he was, or I didn't go to Samuel's prophet academy. You know, I, I didn't have Elijah's mantle thrown across me. None of these things happened that would make me a prophet. My background is just breeding sheep, picking fruit. Like, uh, he was a tradie background. He wasn't uh, an intellectual. The prophet thing wasn't his plan. But as he worked, it says God took him, called him as a prophet, directed him to go to the children of Israel. Now, this word took, it's the same word used when God took the Levites in Numbers 18.6. And David in 2 Samuel 7 and 8 through Nathan, where he said, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. So he's like, I chose you and I took you. I said, hey, you're the one that I want you to speak. Not because you went to prophet school, but because, because I said so. And really, we don't need more than that, right, from God. If he just says, he doesn't need to give us a reason. He could just say, I'm choosing you. He was a sovereign choice of God. His ability and his insight showed that his ordination was from God. It was kind of the mark of God upon him that he had not wanted to be a prophet, and yet he had skill and gifting to prophesy. I'm reminded of the scribes and Pharisees where Peter and John and the apostles are brought before them, and they recognized they were unlearned men, and yet they spoke such gracious wisdom. And they said, these guys have been with Jesus. And they recognized that they were unlearned fishermen from Galilee. They could tell by their accent. Uh, but they, they were with Jesus, and he, his spirit, the spirit of the living God was upon them. So it wasn't just unlikely that Amos would have become a prophet. It was really impossible, and God did that, uh, made him the prophet. So Amaziah, he tells Amos, he says, shut up and go home. And Amos says, well, you who say do not speak against God, he's got something for you. And he says, your wife will be reduced to harlotry. Your children will die by the sword. Your inheritance is going to be divided. You will die as a captive in a foreign land. Since he rejected God and his prophet, it's like God's going to confirm his prophetic calling through personal experience. He says, all these things are going to happen to you. And you'll know the truth before the end. Whether you want to receive it or not, that's another thing. But all these things are going to happen. And it's going to confirm the word of the Lord that I've spoken. The tragic consequences of the sin of unbelief. Now, there was hope for Amaziah. There was hope for his family if they would turn to God, if they would trust in him. But on their own, they were without hope. They were facing the same judgment and condemnation as the rest of the nation. And having rejected God and his messenger, Amaziah would be numbered among those disgraced captives. We live in a world that, that's very much promoting of self, right? Where, where self-interest rules as king. 
where we are, we are encouraged, I know I was in my youth, to create and to seize opportunities, to be looking out for yourself, to looking to advance, to look to improve um, for your benefit. Where, you know, you pursue your dreams and your ambitions at all costs. That's the most important thing, to do what you want to do. David's past path to the throne and Amos' path to be a prophet had nothing to do with their ambitions or their dreams or their goals. It was God's good, sovereign plan for them. Both those men, they exercised faith in God as, as David was faithful to tend his father's sheep, doing a job that his older brothers, it seems, wanted no part of, and they looked down upon. Remember when David came and visited his brothers, he's like, you know, you're hanging with those few sheep out there. It's kind of a byword and not a cool thing to be a shepherd amongst them. But God took David as he was faithful in that little thing and anointed him king over Israel. He chose him. It wasn't because he was a great shepherd. It's because God is faithful, God is sovereign, and he chose him. God used the breeding and the farming, no doubt, as preparation ground for Amos. He says, I was just following the flock, and God took me. I was going about my business. I was happy to do what I was doing. But God took me, put his hand upon me, and he directed me to do something that was never in my mind to do. Who but God knows the good plans that he has for your life that have not entered into your mind? The things that you have not even dared or wanted to dream, he has in store for you that are good. And we shrink from them because they're unknown and perhaps uncomfortable. I mean, we don't, we don't want to go and have bad news to share, right? We want to have good news all the time to share. But that wasn't Amos's call. He had a specific message to a group of people. I encourage you to resist the urge to guess or to seek what these plans might be or God's timing for them. Seek the Lord, but be faithful in what he's called you to do right now. Flourish where he's planted you and established you. You're mistaken to think, and I'm mistaken to think, that I need a change of scenery or a new career to be fruitful and fulfilled in my life in following Jesus Christ. That we can be fruitful and fulfilled right where we are, and God, he can take you and do something totally different with you because he is God and he is wise and awesome. God took Amos as he's following the flock. God called, I mean, Jesus called um, Levi when he's sitting at the receipt of custom at the tax office. He just was going to work like every other day. He was at the tax office and Jesus just said, follow me. He's like, okay. And so he did. He just left the money. He left his job. No two-week notice and he followed Jesus. That's a great challenge to me. And as we follow Jesus, we'll know what to do. We'll be empowered to do what he calls us to do. Whether he takes us to a new job or a new career or a role or home to be with him in heaven, we will be satisfied and able to do. Perhaps you do have dreams or aspirations or ambitions for your life, but the plans God has are far better and greater. We're kind of like, if I could compare it, it, we're like the dog who really is excited to go on a walk, but has no idea where his master's going. Just pulling at the lead, all excited to sniff everything and explore and like 
Like, if you ask the dog, you say, okay, Lord, can I have, like, a, a Balaam and donkey moment and actually talk to this creature and say, where are you going? Where are you in a hurry to get to? Well, you're choking yourself to death because you're so excited to go. Go. You just want to go somewhere else. What are you looking for? And the dog's like, I don't know. Anywhere but here. <laughs> and that could be like us. He's like, you're with me. And, and Amos was kind of like a dog who learned to heal. And when his master went and his master stopped, he sat down and waited. Didn't matter if he was picking fruit or if he was with the herd. He was faithful to just walk with the Lord. And the Lord said, and, and which dog would you be more likely to take on a walk or to let off the lead when you're in a big park? The dog that's just excited and will run away and not come back to you and you've got to like tire it out or chase it or beg and you know, bribe and all these things to try to get the dog to cooperate. Or the dog that you know, hey, that dog knows to come when called, when it's time to leave, let's go. And the dog's there. Well, the, the do I would be much more apt to release the, the obedient dog, the dog who's learned to heal and to come when called. And that was how Amos was. He was responsive to what God said. It didn't matter who was around. He knew what his master was who his master was and where he had called him and what he had called him to do. And it was pretty simple. It was still hard. It was hard because he had opposition. And he had even his own flesh to deal with. But Amos was faithful. He took his cues from his master. God led him to do a different job. And God supernaturally helped him to do it well. On to Amos 8, verse 1. Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? So I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord God. Many dead bodies everywhere. They shall be thrown out in silence. We see here the fourth vision given Amos by God. And God says, what do you see? And he said, well, a basket of summer fruit. There's nothing really scary or foreboding about a basket of fruit. Uh, it's refreshing and delicious, but the fact that it's summer fruit, it gives us some insight about it. It means that it's the end of the season. The trees are no longer producing. And the fruit was ripe. And like in our climate, I have learned that fruit can ripen really quickly. Like it's with the humidity and the heat, if you're not going to eat your bread right away, I chuck it in the fridge or the freezer because it's going to get moldy within a couple of days. And uh, in, our f in our family, we have a, f a fruit bowl that had some bananas in it at the beginning of the week. And they went from green to like super spotty overnight. So it's like, where was the ripe portion? Like where you could actually eat them. Kind of missed that completely. And then it's like, well, they're about good for banana bread unless, unless brown bananas are your thing. I, I know one person who, who would eat them. But, uh, ooh, definitely made me a little uncomfortable just thinking about it. But he said, I'm comparing my people to this basket of summer fruit. They've reached the end of their fruitfulness. That deterioration, that spoilage is going to happen quickly. The things that I've been preaching against this people, they are going to come to pass. And it's irreversible. Like once the the flies start laying eggs in the fruit once it's like dripping and you go, what's this? And there's a big mess underneath it and you have apples touching each other and they're all bad. Like no one would feel bad. No one would disagree that that needs to go. 
It's not to be eaten. It needs to be chucked. And that's really what's happened. That's what occurred in Samaria. He says, in the place of singing praise in the temple, there's going to be wailing. There's going to be mourning. Uh, There's not going to be enough living people to bury the slain because of the enemies that will be brought upon the nation. Uh, And those, those under judgment they would agree that rotten fruit needs to be thrown out. A tree that's not producing fruit, that's taking up space. At some point, if you're a farmer and this tree is not producing, it has to go. It's better as firewood than a fruit tree because it's not, it's not producing anything. And Jesus uh, brings that out in a parable. Why don't we turn to it in Luke 13, starting in verse 6. Since they departed from faith and obedience to God, they were like a branch that's been cut off from the vine. They were no longer producing. They were cut off from their source of life. And this is a parable Jesus told about an owner who was patient with a fruitless tree, but at a point, he had to act. Luke 13, verse 6, he also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. In the mind of the owner, he's like, I'm using space, fertilizer, labor, water on a tree that's producing nothing. It's not benefiting me. At some point, we're going to have to get a new tree in here. And the, the uh, labor is like, okay, yeah, that's cool, but give me time. Let me have a year to prune it and to feed it and to water it. And if it still doesn't produce, all right, I agree. We're going to have to get another tree. It was like God told Amos that that extra year, it was over. They had had opportunities, 490 years, to walk in his ways and to observe his Sabbaths and to stop oppressing one another and to hear his prophets, and yet they refused. So at some point, he was no longer going to stave off sin's consequences. It would come. And now we hear why in Amos 8, verse 4. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy. Make the poor of the land fail, saying, When will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat? The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall the land not tremble for this, and everyone mourn who dwells in it? All of it shall swell like the river. Heave and subside like the river of Egypt. God pointed out the sin that called for judgment, their hypocrisy, the greed, and the oppression of the poor. And if they pointed out their compliance to observe the feast days and the Sabbaths, he's saying, yeah, you had this outward worship, but your heart wasn't in it. Like I know that there are other things that you actually would much rather be doing than being at the observing the sabbath day you've been compliant but we haven't been walking in agreement he says you look more forward to the times of worship being over so that you can do the stuff that you really are interested in doing the stuff that really excites you you want to make a profit rather than to seek profiting god who's given you everything that you have 
And this is familiar to me. Uh, there was a day when I could hardly wait for church to be over because there was a football game on that afternoon, right? I was ex- it was kind of like church and praise and prayer was a bit of an obstacle to doing the thing that I really wanted to do. Have you guys ever felt like, I wish I could fast forward this? I wish he would stop talking so that we can get on with the day. And, and I was reading yesterday, I think in Screwtape Letters, where he says, there's this idea that, you know, my time, you're wasting my time. And, and he says, you know, um, all of our time is God's time. It's his. The idea that we have our time, my time, that's, that's really an error. Like, we exist because of God. He's given us time. And so we should be serving him. And it's fine to, I'm not saying it's, it's wrong to have a business or to, to work and to, to gain money, to watch sport on Sunday or any other day. But the problem is the things that they loved wasn't God. They loved other things more. And the things that they loved, it obscured their view of God and turned away their desires and affections. God knew the shady things that they were doing in their business. He says, you're charging full price for less. You're tweaking the scale so that people have to pay more. You're, you're mixing in the bad wheat. So the, the wheat that's been stepped on or had come in contact with the, the waste of the bull or the cow that's been trampling it, and you just mixed it in, and you're selling it for full price instead of letting people know that it's been defiled. And you're... you're you're all you businessmen, you're in on the scam. You all know that it's happening. And this violated the law, as we read in Leviticus, that they were to do no injustice in judgment, that they should have honest scales, honest weights, because God is true and honest. And if he says, this is a pound, well, that's a pound. And so that was their, their character was to reflect his nature. And they did that knowing that people were unable to pay and that not being able to pay, they would be able to buy more slaves to have service. And the lives of their neighbors and their friends were of very little value. It says they were selling them for a pair of shoes, a pair of sandals. So life was cheap. The honest, caring, and giving society that God had devised, it, it had been corrupted by greed. And God swears by himself. He says, I'll never forget your deeds. The land is going to tremble for the things that you've done. Samuel calls God the strength of Israel. Amos, he calls him the pride of Jacob. Like you take pride in me, but uh, God took no pride in their dealings. It talks about the, the river of Egypt, the Nile. When that river would flood, the whole region would be affected. And so he's saying the judgment is coming. It's going to affect everyone. No one's going to escape that. It's going to all, it's going to be impacting everyone. That the enemies, they will overwhelm the people. Now, I want to point out that even though God said, I'm not going to forget the evil that you've done, remember under the covenant of law, that he remembers labors of love. He remembers the good too. But let's not think that that there's a possibility that the good things we do could outweigh the bad, that the good thing that I did, it turns away God's judgment from me. No. We must be born again. We, the only hope for us sinners is to have our sins atoned for and forgiven and washed clean. That's the only way that we can be acceptable to God. But it is nice to know that 
there's something that you do in obedience to God, God remembers that. We read that in Hebrews 6, 9 through 10, where the writer says, But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So God doesn't forget the good things that you've done, even though those good things that we do are only through him, right? It's because he has made us born again. He's filled us with his spirit. And so really it's his own gift, re-gifting it back to him. And he remembers that. He's pleased with that. He will remember and reward those who labor in love towards him and towards others. Amos 8, verse 9. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son, and its end like a bitter day. This day refers to a day of judgment that would come upon the nation, the day in which their sin demanded a reckoning. And he's like, at the time when you're expecting the sun to be shining, you're going to be enshrouded in darkness. The feasts and the songs that you hope to fast forward, those are going to be replaced with wailing and grief that cannot be avoided. You will face this judgment. You will be filled with grief and mourn what was once sweetness. It will only be bitter. Moving on to verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for, of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. In that day, the fair virgins and the strong young men shall faint from thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Amos was sent to give a message to people who were not listening, who distorted the facts when they spoke to the king to daub him in. And it was to this people that God would send a famine on the land of a particular kind. It was a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. It's much worse than a famine of bread or of water because only God has the words of life. He gives us eternal life. In light of reaping what you sow, it's appropriate that those who refuse to hear the word of God, it's like they would become deaf to it. So they had the word, they had the law, but they would not hear it. They would seek it, but they would be unable to find it, to be able to receive it. This picture of them wandering from sea to sea, they're desperate to get some directive from God, but not receiving it. It reminds me of King Saul at the end of his reign. Remember when he disobeyed the Lord and he was filled with pride and he sought honor rather than honoring God. It said the Holy Spirit departed from him and a distressing spirit tormented him. And he lived out his days in that way. He was still king. He had been rejected as king and uh, he, he followed his own devices. And what happened was toward the end of his reign, the Philistines came up against him. He was really worried and concerned, and he was so desperate that he actually sought God. It doesn't, we don't hear of him seeking the Lord at all for years and years, decades past, 
before he sought the Lord. I mean, he was killing the priests of Nob. So here's a guy who had departed from the Lord, and, and he was so desperate that he says, I've sought the Lord with Urim and Thummim, I have, but I've heard nothing. And impatience was something that always plagued Saul. And he, he heard nothing from the Lord, and so what did he do? He sought out the counsel of a medium, a spiritist, a necromancer, to raise Samuel from the dead so he might inquire of the Lord through him. And this really sealed his end in battle the next day. God, who had given many opportunities to repent, he, he was not able to hear the Lord because he had refused to listen to the Lord for all those years. And just like Saul fell on Mount Galboa on his own sword, the young men and the young women of Israel, the most fit, the, the fairest, the most strong among them, they would fall and not rise again. They would put their trust in idols that could not save and they were given over to sin that God warned them against. This will be your ruin. And they continued in them. And the refusal to hear these warnings through Moses, the prophets, and Amos, it led to deafness. And they had this colloquialism where they would say, as your Lord lives or as your God lives. And, and these were idols. They weren't alive. They were just objects that couldn't hear or, or taste or speak or save them. And so they were putting their trust in something that, that only condemned them. So all the money that they'd gained through deceit, all the land they acquired by theft, all the honor that they had amongst the people as uh, Amaziah the priest did, it would not help them on the day of judgment. They would fall. Now, I don't think anyone likes to hear messages of judgment. I personally don't. <laughs> judgment is it's something that we will all face as an unbeliever or a believer. We will all be judged. Um, but if judgment's coming, aren't you grateful to know about it before it happens so you can be prepared to face it? I am. I'm very glad to know, to have a, a brief, a very brief description of what hell is like or what separation from God means, what it means to be in fire forever in darkness, cut off from God in any hope, filled with regret and sorrow. One question is, when we read the Bible, how do we read it? Do we read it like advice or a self-help book to get what we want? Do we read it like a book of poetry to stir up our emotions or philosophy to critique? And we kind of put it against all these other thoughts and you know, put our two cents in of what we think really is the best way? Um, or is it, is it the timeless truth and wisdom of God spoken to you? When Amaziah heard the word of God, he was offended. He said, shut up, go home, don't say that anymore. And this was the word of God. And there, there's part of us that just goes, okay, I've heard that enough. I'm not interested in hearing that. Let's move on. <laughs> well, thankfully for all of us, right, we only have a, a one week left. But this is where we have to stay. Like, I'm not thankful to, like, move on. Like, whoo, glad that's over. Part of me, yes. Part of me is like, I would love to hear another theme being expounded upon. But part of me needs to hear this weeks on end so that I would listen, so that I would come to my senses, so that I will notice those sins that, that, that I miss, that I don't realize is a sin and I need to repent of and to return to God. I 
I love that it says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul was very thankful. He says, this, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. If we just take this as the word of men, then we can take it or leave it. It's just an opinion. But if it's the word of God, then that should arrest us. And we should be still and consider what God is saying to us, not to the world, to you. Because when we receive God's word with a willing heart, that passage of 1 Thessalonians 2.13, it says the word of God effectively works in those who believe. And we had talked about, sung this morning about, you know, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Yes, God is working. And if his word dwells in you richly, he is working in and through your life. Because it says there that when you receive God's word as God's word, the word of God, it effectively works in you who believe. So hearing is one thing, but when mixed with faith, it's effective to work in you. Salvation, fruitfulness, Goodness, these gifts of the Spirit through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And like much of the book of Amos, our passage today has been heavy with judgment for sin. And for every sinner, and that's the key thing, if you're a sinner, this is relevant to you. If you're not a sinner, then you can just chuck Amos. But no, we are all sinners. We need uh, to repent and we need to be examining ourselves. But in telling bad news from our vantage point, there's one, a couple of verses I want to go back to in verses 9 and 10. The Bible tells us that all souls, that, every soul that sins will surely die. The wages of sin is death. But this passage, it alludes to our judgment that God took upon himself so we could live. Verses 9 and 10, And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning, all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son, and its end like a bitter day. The people of Israel experienced this. They experienced this darkness. They experienced this this morning of like, oh no, there's no hope for us. But this was speaking of a future time as well, when Jesus would be crucified on Calvary. The Bible describes as he hung on the cross at 12 o'clock at noon, the earth was shrouded in darkness. From noon to three, the betrayal and execution had happened during the Passover feast. See, it says, I will turn your feasts into mourning. There were people that saw Jesus hanging there, and they mourned him. They grieved over him. It says they hit their chests and returned. Like, ah. And then it says that they would mourn like people who grieve the death of an only son. And we know that Jesus is the only begotten son of the Father who died for the sins of the world. Listen to what Zechariah 12.10 says. It says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him 
as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Isn't that remarkable? That I will, so the judgment is required for sin, but I will pour upon them the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look upon me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. We deserve judgment, but God has made a way of salvation and forgiveness for us. Like the summer fruit that spoils quickly, we all have a short period of time on this earth where we have an opportunity to repent and to follow Jesus, to serve God. The curse of sin is upon us, but Jesus took the sin of the world upon himself so that we could live. And in the face of death for sin, it's a, it's a bitter, wretched picture, right? This judgment of God. We see the loving face of Jesus who was pierced and he died so we could live by faith through him. So it's a, this Amos passage, it's so phenomenal how this judgment was deserved and it was coming for them, yet God would make a way for people under that same judgment to have new life. And we are benefactors of that. We are recipients of this grace and the ability to have supplication, to be able to speak to God because of him and all he's accomplished. If we grieve and mourn the death of Jesus, that the Son of God should die for our sins, let's grieve over sin, let's repent, so that he would receive the reward of his suffering and when we take of the bread and of the cup, we remember the purging of our sin, the reconciling of ourselves to God, that we have a restoration of a relationship we never have experienced before through the gospel, through Christ. And we proclaim his death until he comes. And he's not coming back in a box. He is coming back living and powerful and awesome. The King of kings and Lord of lords. And we do this in obedience to him. We do it to identify with him that because we have, he has died for us and we believe him, we have received him into us and he lives through us. So the bread is that broken body of Christ. The cup is his shed blood, a picture of that, a symbol. And having repented, let us take it rejoicing. Let's rejoice because we are unworthy but he has sanctified us, he has justified us, and he will someday glorify us for his glory. It's like we, we were under that spiritual famine of lacking uh, the word of God, and yet it's been turned to feasting and rejoicing. So even in death, now we have life. He is the resurrection and the life, and let's celebrate what our Savior has done. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to be our Savior. That we were lost, but now we're found. We were empty, but now we're filled to overflowing. And we were far off, but you brought us near by the blood of Jesus. We were aliens from the commonwealth of heaven, but you have accepted us as sons and made us citizens of heaven. Oh, Lord, we, we praise and rejoice that even in um, a passage that that strikes fear or 
or maybe dismay into our hearts. Lord, I, I guess it depends on the day. But thank you that even in judgment, your grace is seen, that you have given warnings and that you have made a way for salvation through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Lord, give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church and is saying to each one of us today, that we would be those who hear you, that we would be not like the, the I guess, the impulsive pup who's going his own way, who has no idea what his master wants. Lord, I pray that we would, as we follow you, you would take us and do whatever you want with us. You would guide us into truth. You would lead us by your word. And Lord, as we remember the sacrifice of Christ and the love that he demonstrated by dying for us, that we would rejoice because we've been forgiven. We've been made new. We now have hope where there was only despair and sorrow and grief and mourning, and loss, and lack. Lord, you are so good to us, and I pray we would always praise you, not just today, but at all times. In Jesus' name, amen.